You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. Uh, This week, I'm talking to Dominic Frisby. Dominic is an author, a comedian, a voice actor. My colleague Frank tells me he's best known as a co-host of a television program called Money Pit. Um, but he's also Money Week's main commentator on gold, commodities, currencies, and I know someone's going to get excited about this, cryptocurrencies. Um, he's the author of the book Bitcoin, the Future of Money, um, and also uh, Life After the State. Uh, he's co-written the documentary Four Horsemen, presents a chat show, stuff that interests me, and he also writes for The Guardian, but we won't hold that against him. Well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction, Harry, and it's a pleasure to be here. And I do have a a varied career, but I am a freelancer and soon, hopefully one day, a digital nomad. And we are all Renaissance men when we are freelancers. That's right. Um, so tell me about how you got into finance. I fell into it because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. How about you? How, what What made you drift across? There were sort of two reasons. One is that I'd made a bit of money and I was looking to invest it and I didn't trust all these fund managers who I went to meet uh, who all wanted their little percentages here and there. I got a bad vibe off them. The internet, we're in the mid-noughties. I'd started spending too much time in the dark hours of the internet drinking wine and reading crap and I discovered gold and once you discover gold, it's obviously a political metal because of the fact that it was once money and you start reading about libertarian politics. And finally, I understood why houses in the UK cost such a ridiculous amount of money relative to people, what people earn, because I discovered all about fiat money and debt creation and so on. And I was really interested to learn more. And there were lots of clever people uh, talking about stuff on the Internet And I had a background, as you mentioned, in voiceovers. So I started a podcast, which was basically my excuse to talk to all these people. And I think the very first person I interviewed was Jim Rogers. Pretty good uh, first interview. And uh, one of the people I interviewed was a lady called Merrin Somerset Webb, who was a Financial Times journalist. And she is the editor of a magazine called Money Week. And she said, oh, we need people like you who don't know, who aren't all boring old financial fuddy-duddies. Will you come and write for us? And that's kind of my journey basically hmm. so i was i was taken aback when you talked about now you know why house prices are so high in the uk tell me why house prices are so high in the uk because we, we all have theories i think you're right reading between the lines but i'm sure other people are curious about this as well what, when you were reading on the internet in the in the long in the small hours what what did you what did you conclude there are two reasons why houses are expensive in the uk Uh, One is dumb planning laws, which restrict the amount of new build that can get built, and that creates a certain amount of monopoly. But actually, if you look at house prices in the 10 years from 1997 to 2007, 
the housing stock increased by 10% and the population grew by 5%. So if house prices were simply a function of supply and demand, they should have fallen slightly over the period. They didn't. They went up more than 350%. So what is it that made them go up by so much? Well, then you look at new money creation over the same period and the money supply increased by roughly the same amount. And you can chart most money, certainly prior to quantitative easing, all money gets created when new debt is issued. The Bank of England's inflation measures don't measure money creation. They only measure the price of a basket of consumable goods. So the inflation figures are about, you know, you've heard of this a million times, but they're about the cost of certain consumable, certain consumer goods, which are prone to the deflationary forces of increased productivity. In other words, we've got better at making them. But inflation measures don't measure where the money goes. They don't include house prices. They don't include stock prices. All these things were going up uh, at a rate that reflected the money supply, because that's where something like 83% of new money goes. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's more than 80%. And so house prices are a function of loose lending and easy money and debt-based fiat currency. If you raised interest rates to a figure that roughly reflected money supply growth, not consumer price inflation, then interest rates would have been north of 10% for most of the period. They'd be north of 10% today. And house prices would pity rapidly come back to uh, a level that ordinary people can afford on three times their salary. One more thing to add to that. If you have a market and there is no debt in that market, whether it's margin or mortgage, whatever the form of debt it is, then the cost of the things in that market will roughly um, reflect local cash levels. As soon as you introduce debt into a market, then suddenly prices in that market are able to go up by a lot more because there's a lot more money sloshing around. And, you know, the invention of the mortgage, mortgages only really came into existence in maybe the 30s or in the 50s after the Second World War. And mortgage supply growth has increased dramatically. And so you could literally say house prices are a reflection of mortgage supply growth. In other words, money creation. That's a long-winded answer. But it, the, the short answer is it's not planning laws. It's not easy planning, it's easy money that causes high house prices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would finesse the answer of a few observations, but then I'm ex-Bank of England, so I would make up nonsense as I go along, wouldn't I? And some of it is just that it was possible to, to allow interest rates to drift lower over time. So people borrow lots of money and when they borrow that money, it becomes critically important. As you get a bad economy, you have to ease policy to stop people losing their homes. So interest rates have ratcheted down over time, never ratcheting up. Yeah. If they ratcheted up, people would lose their houses. Um, this is generally politically unpopular, and we don't vote for people who've resulted in us losing our houses, at least not as much. So that's sort of how we got here. Yeah, uh, the, the interest rate raising cycle of 89 to 94, which caused the house price crash in the UK, which now, if you look at house prices, just looks like a blip, but it was huge at the time and many people yeah. lost their homes. Oh, yeah. I think that more than anything else is what made the Tories unelectable for half a generation. People losing their homes. Yeah, you hit people in their pocket, they never forgive you. They never forgive you. Um, it's true. Um, and of course, Tony Blair was very careful never to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's worth, worth bearing that in mind. Um, so 
you know the premise of this podcast. The idea is we're looking for the next big trade and, and you have an investment thesis. Tell us about the opportunity. Yeah, well, I've written about this at length on my Substack page. I've got a Substack letter, frisbee.substack.com, if you're interested. Fris- it's called The Flying Frisbee, but frisbee.substack.com. And I was thinking about what to mention and you know, I quite like gold miners at the moment. I know gold miners are a death death wish over the years, but I quite like them at the moment. But I thought, oh, you're bound to have people talking about gold miners. And then, obviously, I like Bitcoin as a long-term buy and hold, but you're bound to have people who've talked about Bitcoin and gold. But what I did recently is I put out a special report about tin, the commodity, the metal tin, uh, you know, the metal of tin pan alleys and, and cans, Um, And I think tin is probably one third to halfway through an extraordinary bull market. And I don't know many people that are talking about tin. There aren't that many ways to play it. And I put out this special report, as I say, on my Substack channel. And so that's why I've chosen to talk about tin. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So tell us why the opportunity exists. What's driving the, the uh, this sounds like a bull market in tin we're meant to get long. So first thing, why is that, why does that bull market exist? Well, um, we tend, I mean, it's the usual story that applies to any metal is uh, there's a shortage of supply, there's been a decade of underinvestment, and demand is on the increase. But specifically for tin, um, on the demand side first, tin is essential to semiconductors. Every semiconductor in the world contains some tin. But the amount of tin, tin is the solder. Uh, uh, It's known as the glue of metals. And so it's essential to global electronics, to semiconductors, to electric vehicles, to solar power, to the rollout of 5G, to the Internet of Things. So all these new groovy technologies that we're about to be enjoying all require tin. It's essential to the low carbon economy. And, you know, without it, electrons don't flow, electric vehicle batteries don't charge. And so demand is going up. Now, the amount of tin used in a solder on a semiconductor has got lower and lower. So even though semiconductor demand is on the increase, the amount of tin in a semiconductor has got lower because they've got better at making stuff and so they need less and less tin. But the, the, the received wisdom is we've now reached peak minimum tin in semiconductors, if that makes sense. So tin demand is on the increase. And then you look at tin supply, and there are several uh, main suppliers of tin, but a lot of it comes from alluvial mining, which is very environmentally unfriendly. So there's this new thing that you're going to have to show the source of your tin and that your tin was green tin. And so that's hurt supply from Indonesia and Myanmar. Myanmar supply um, uh, has fallen off a cliff because of... um, uh, political problems. There's a bit of a war going on there. 
Exactly. Indonesian tin supply has been affected by if the if it's very windy, if there's not a lot of rain, if the waves get too big for the dredges to operate, um, there are all sorts of problems. And 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 Indonesian supply has been hit by uh, bad weather, and tin production has fallen over the last couple of years, even though demand is on the increase. So it's a classic: demand's gone one way. Uh, supply has gone the other. We see it time and time again in metals, and it takes a secular bull market to sort the whole thing out for supply eventually to go beyond demand, and then the metal crashes, and then you go back to the beginning of the cycle again. So that's the cycle. Now, if you look at previous tin bull markets, um, and I've been looking at tin going all the way all the way back to the 1960s, and basically you had the big bull market in tin of the 1970s. And over the course of that period, the tin price went up eight or nine times over the course of the decade. Then from 1980 through till 2001, 2002, something like that, 20 years of bear market. Massive bull market in tin in the noughties. Tin went up eight times over the noughties. And then we've just been through 10 years or more of bear market. The bear market low in tin was $14,000 a tonne. Currently, tin's around about $40,000 a tonne. It's been as high as 50000 So it's already tripled, let's say, from the bear market lows. But to go eight times, nine times, and be consistent with the tin bull markets of the, of the 70s and the noughties, tin would have to go north of $100,000. Um, you know, if it what's I don't know what eight times fourteen four eights are thirty two it would be one hundred and twelve thousand dollars. So that would be consistent with previous the only two bull markets there have been in tin since the nineteen sixties. And it's my contention that we're about a third of the way, therefore maybe even as much as half of the way through this bull market, and it's got a lot more to go. Now I will say the tin price has struggled. Uh, in the last month or so, with the US dollar going parabolic, it's pulled back with most metals. So it got to 50,000. It's now pulled back to 40,000. Um, so those are the supply-demand fundamentals of tin. The next big question is, is how do you play it? And there really aren't that very many ways to do so. Um, I've, as I say, I've written an extensive report on it on my Substack, and it's a it's a paid report, so you, you you have to cough up money to read it. But I'll I'll give you the the inside scoop. There is a tin. It's very hard to buy tin futures. You can't sort of go go long tin with your spread betting account. But there is a t tin ETF, um, which uh, is by Wisdom Tree. It's listed in the UK. I'm just looking for the ticker symbol now, which is why I'm slightly delaying as I say it. You'd think it would be TIN, wouldn't you? You'd think that would be the obvious. Well, it's actually, in the in the UK, it's T-I-N-M, TINMA. And in the US, there's a, there's a sub-index which reflects TIN futures, J-J-T. But let's say TIN goes from 40,000 to 100,000 over the next five years. Well, that's only you know, two and a half times. So if you want something a bit more spicy than the plain old ETF, you've got to go for the miners. And there aren't that many pure tin plays, right? I think I've spoken enough. Um, so you asked me some questions, Harry. Well, um, pure tin, I, I was looking this up because I knew you were going to talk about tin. And I see that um, the Chinese seem to be dominant players in the industry. 
Um, they're often dominant players in industries which involve large amounts of environmental devastation. <laughs> no offence, uh, but uh, they seem a little less focused on those those issues than some. Uh, but Yunnan Tin seems to be the biggest global producer, and there's a uh, Yunnan Chengfeng as well. But uh, yeah, I was really curious about how you'd express the trade. I mean, there's a Bolivian producer, um, uh, EM Vinto, but I've got no idea you know, how easy it is to trade Bolivian stocks. And I have a strong suspicion it ain't that easy. How would you suggest getting involved? What, what stock, if you were going to go for a single stock, what would you What would you take? Well, I'll, I'll come to that in one second. I'm just trying to find my page that um, lists out uh, the main producers. But from memory, China's the biggest producer. Yes, China's the biggest producer, followed by Indonesia, Myanmar, and then you've got Peru, Bolivia, Brazil. And DRC, Congo. So China's the biggest producer, but typical of China, it's also the biggest importer. (laughs) Now, I don't advise readers, listeners to get involved with Chinese stocks. Um, There's not the same accountability there. Um, I saw a presentation by a Chinese lady the other day, and she insisted that 60% of the market cap of the Chinese stocks is government-owned. And if you buy Chinese stocks, you're funding the Chinese authoritarian state, which has got, let's say, a mixed track record. So, yeah, the top tin producing companies are Yunnan Tin, PT Timar, uh, and Malaysia Smelting in Malaysia. But I wouldn't recommend any of those. You know, I like Canada for resource stocks, Australia as well. So let's look at Canada. Now, the best tin producer on the Canadian stock market is a company called Alphamin, ticker symbol AFM. As I say, if you get my report, it's all on there, but um, it's also listed in South Africa on the uh, on the JSE, um, uh, APH. And it has the world's best tin deposit, the world's highest grade tin deposit. Um, It's roughly 4.5% tin, which is about four times better than average. Um, And it produces, it's recently gone into production and it pays a roughly 3% dividend and it produces, uh, I think, something like 4 or 5% of global tin. It's currently trading at a market cap of about 1%. Uh, yeah, 4% of global supply. Its market cap at the moment is about 1.2 billion Canadian, maybe 1.4. Um, uh, sorry, 1.2 US and uh, what would that be? 1.5, 1.6 Canadian. So it's big. It's not a tiddler. It's trading at about $1.39. But if you just if you look at the chart, it's just a perfect uptrend. It just never stops rising incrementally uh, over the last two or three years. There's also, so the tin comes from its Mpama North mine, but it's next to it, it's got its Mpama South prospect and it's done some expansionary drilling there and the grades have been bonanza, bonanza, bonanza. I think one tin hole was 40% tin <laughs> in the rock, which is as close to pure tin as you can get in a rock, I think. Sure, sure. And so it's got the production and it's got the bonanza drill results to give it the blue sky and the only problem, if it's a problem, is it's in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You'd much rather it was in, you know, Australia or Canada or somewhere, but it's DRC. So, but it is still the best tin mine in the world. And I think something like 50% is owned by a fund that's been in it a long time. And 
the funders sort of bullied the company to solicit offers. So it's currently in the course of doing that. And so I think it's going to get taken out. I think it's going to get taken out by a Chinese company. Um, you know, Chinese like their African assets, as we know. And it's currently 140. I've got a target of two, a first target of $2.50 uh, on the stock, but it could easily be taken out before that. Um, if it was, it's 140 at the moment, I don't know what kind of premium you expect, but anything out, anything under $2, in my opinion, would be a steal for the buyer. And I'd like this company to just stay producing and stay mining for another two or three years so that this bull market can evolve. But you know what people are like, uh, especially funds, they want their sale. Yeah. So that's my number one Tim pick. Um, so that's one question about it. If I were to look for an ESG compliant uh, Tim pick, um, this, you know, totally unfair question, but what would I, what would, is this stock consistent with being uh, the best practice in the industry? I don't know the answer to that, but I would imagine it's a hard rock mine. It's not an alluvial mine. So that's a big ESG pro. It will be because it's Canadian. I'm going to venture out and say, yes, it'll be, it's green tin. It's because it's hard rock, not alluvial. So worthwhile having a look. Uh, yeah, it's a factor. It is definitely a factor. You're right. Well, usually just the ideal ESG play is one where the element of production or the, yeah. the, the that which is produced is a relatively small proportion of the total uh, cost. 100%. Of the item, you know, of the item you're producing. I'm going to give you your ESG tin play in just a second. Sure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Now, I like this idea. It seems sensible, although I know pretty much, let's, we could say it's a first approximation. I know nothing about this. Um, you could argue I know a little bit because I did 15 minutes work on tin, but really nothing is a better approximation. But it does seem to tick lots of the boxes. Um, the big question for me is how much should you risk on this play? And um, what proportion of a portfolio would you say? Is there a stop? How, how do you control the risk reward on this? Um, well, it's a mining stock. So, you know, anything can happen. If it will go wrong, if it can go wrong, it will. You know, I'm overweight commodities and mining in my portfolio and it's not balanced at all. And I'm a bit irresponsible like that. And it's bitten me in the past and sometimes it's rewarded me in the past. But, you know, the reset, the received wisdom, never allocate more than 2% on a trade or never 5% to one individual. Um, well, let's have a look. What percentage of my overall portfolio is in this? Uh yeah, 5%. Okay, so there's a significant overweight. And you've probably got other commodities as well. Actually, about 3%. Let me come to another company here. Sure. So sure. if you like Australian stocks, there's a company called Metals X, which I don't own, but it's Australia's largest tin producer. So those are the two producers. But there's a company listed in London, uh, like literally last week, two weeks ago, called First Tin. And it's got... 
hard rock deposits in Australia and it's got hard rock deposits in Saxony and Germany. Past producing mines, high grade, and they're if you look at their website, they're really going for the, the green tin ESG branding. This is a development play. It's not a producer. It's going to need some more money at some stage. Um, and it's only about 60 or 70 million pound market cap. So say, what would that be? A hundred million dollars. So it's a, a, maybe a tenth or a fifteenth the size of, um, of uh, uh, Af- uh, uh, Alphamin. First tin, ticker symbol 1SN. SN is the um, chemical, whatever they call it, code for kin, uh, for tin, the chemical symbol for tin. So this is development play, and it's one of the few pure tin plays that there are. And basically, if tin goes up, it'll go up. And if tin doesn't go up, it won't go up. But it, you also get the additional thing of if this management competently execute, and that's a big ask in mining, but if this management competently execute, you will get the growth of this company going from developer to producer. I'm a bit concerned because the company listed at 30p and it's drifted down to 24p. And I've seen a lot of resource stocks do this, London listed resource stocks. They sort of relentlessly grind lower. But I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt at the moment that this is not another one of those, simply because it listed about a week or two after the peak of the market. And it's it basically listed in the panic that we've had over the last fortnight of a parabolic US dollar, all metals selling off and stock markets you know, looking decidedly jittery. So I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and say, if you can pick it up at 24p where it is now, you might actually be buying it at a 20% discount to the IPO price. And so risk-reward-wise, you're, you're seeing something like uh, three to one. I was going to say, I have a bigger position in that one than I do in Alphamin, but I actually think Alphamin is a safer bet. I've, I've just, for one reason or another... Um, I know the management. I've got quite involved in this company, so I've, I'm quite oversize it. And um, with it uh, on its current decline, I've got the slight jitters, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you have a big enough position, it will make you nervous. It always does. So what, you know, as, I, as my wife says to me all the time, what could go wrong? And the answer is pretty much everything, right? So w- what are your risks here? What can go wrong? Well, the biggest risk of all is that the tin price comes down. Uh, you know, we get some kind of deflationary rising interest rates bust or something, the stock market collapses. This isn't a bull market after all. You know, the, the inherent risk is to the underlying commodity. Yeah. And then you look at management. They can't raise the money. They're, some fund drives the price down, so they have to raise the money at a lower price and they dilute. They don't need to raise money for another year or two, I don't think. You know, I've seen it happen, you know, Inflation of materials, costs, uh, changes the economics of the mine. The development drilling, the expansionary drilling isn't as good as they hoped it was. Um, environmental campaigners uh, get involved and try and stop any kind of progress. Um, management is bent. Management is corrupt. I've seen it enough times in mining. We're smaller smaller mines, me too. Yeah. yeah. You know, they they spend their money on their trip to the Savoy and not on developing the project. Well, they probably spend the money on their next pump and dump. You got if, if you know where, where you're being ultra cynical, which is a gift I have, by the way. It's a, uh, something I, I God made me to do is be ultra cynical. But 
uh, I think the the biggest risk that occurred to me because I'm currently making money on my S and P puts, so it tells you it tells you where my head is. Um, is that we may be peaking out on the cycle. Um, that doesn't mean that these trades won't work anyway. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is wherever China is a significant player in a market, there's a risk that that the trade relationship with China will deteriorate in much the same way as a relationship with Russia deteriorated. And you end up with that uh, player excluded from uh, excluded from our access for various reasons. I had someone called Perth Toll on who was talking about uh, investing in China generally and investing in freer markets. Um, and this, you know, she highlighted this risk, or at least maybe I highlight, I can't remember now. One of us highlighted this risk. And it does seem to me that we, we have to be cognizant. Yeah, that I was just going to say, a month ago, when all the metals went, you know, gold kind of went near its old high and copper and they all spiked and they've all come down together. So, you know, it did feel like a blow off top at the time, but I, I think it's a mid-cycle blow off top than, a, than an end of bull market blow off top. But you never know, it might be. On the pro side with metals is that uh, the Xi, President Jing, uh, has given it the big one about how much he's going to spend on infrastructure. So that will mean metals demand across the board, Should which do. would suggest ongoing bullishness in metals. And, you know, there was so little investment in mining uh, all through um, the, the since 2011 to, 20, to 2020 because every metals price was in decline. All the um, exploration stocks were, uh, were starved of capital uh, and mines were shut down rather than opened up. And so it's an, it's, I do think it's an across-the-board thing with metals, but tin specifically is... One, the one where the supply seems tighter than all of them, and but yeah, you know, it it, I guess it's possible that it's peaked, but but my bet is that it hasn't. I think we've probably got a little bit longer to run on the commodity on commodity demand generally for for a bunch of reasons. Wars, for example, help, but uh, you know that there's if the Fed's ringing a bell, um, how much longer do we have? I don't know the answer to that question, and and you guys are better strategic guys than me, but I'd love to know the answer. Yeah, that's right. It would be nice to actually know something for sure rather than guess. Sadly, I'm only ever guessing, and I guess wrong a lot. Thank you for coming on. Did you want to give people a... uh, reiterate where they could find your work? Yeah. um, If they're interested in reading more. I do. Um, I've started a Substack about two months ago, and... Um, it's just been incredibly successful and it's already one of the top 20 finance newsletters on Substack uh, within two months. It's just been so popular. And I I write loads and loads of free content on there. I publish two articles a week, something about the markets midweek and something a bit more thoughtful at the weekend uh, about some issue. And so there's plenty of content. I, I read out all my articles so you can hear my beautiful voice uh, enunciating uh, the, the English language as, as it was supposed to be spoken. And uh, But then I uh, also have a paid version. And, you know, I'm pretty good at unearthing mining opportunities. I also talk a lot about Bitcoin. I wrote the first book about Bitcoin in 2013, 2014. So, um, and each month... Well, it's probably about every three weeks, every month, I'll put out a special tip. And I did this big report on tin uh, a month or two ago. And um, we got a couple of uh, spicy 
gold mining juniors on the go as well. So, but check out the free one. And if you want, uh, the picks have done really well, by the way. I've beaten the market and they're all up despite what's happened over the last month. So that that's taken some doing. Oh, and I didn't tell you the address. I forgot to tell you the address. Sorry. Fri- it's called the Flying Frisbee, but I think I'm, I'm going to change the name to Make Money and Stick It to the Man. Uh, but anyway... Uh, whatever it's called you'll find it frisbee f-r-i-s-b-y frisbee that name by the way means village of the frisian people nothing to do with the things you throw frisbee f-r-i-s-b-y dot substack dot com that's frisbee dot substack dot com dominic thank you so much i've got to tell you it probably has got something to do with frisbee because i bet you the person who invented the frisbee was also you know probably called frisbee as well um, and Frisian, isn't that the, the language that Old English came from? Yeah, well, the Frisian islands are off the coast of Holland and Germany, uh, between there and Scandinavia, basically. And so when there was all that migration from Western Europe, the Vikings and all that, there was loads of Frisian islanders who came along as well. So there are, I don't even know if they're a Germanic people or a, or a Scandinavian people, but they're from that neck of the woods. Oh, they're, they're deaf. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but I remember someone, I remember looking at a phrase in Frisian and it was as if you had a terrible case of dyslexia but were speaking perfectly fluent English. Yeah, well, I'm like that. There was a particular phrase, like, I will graze my cows in the field. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm like that in uh, when, I hear, when I hear Dutch. I always think Dutch sounds like a bunch of Cockneys. Yes. But, um, but yeah, you, you sort of can understand it, but you can't. Cockneys who need to clear their throat, and I'm about yeah. to have death threats, you know, from Holland being sent all over the world for me. Uh, there you go. Um, thank you so much for coming on and discussing that trade. I'm going to dig in a bit more on this because I think there probably is some legs on this, but I don't. I just don't know enough. So I think a little bit. You should always do your own research. That way, you know who to blame when it goes terribly wrong. I yourself. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in, in doing your own research and making your own choices. Don't buy something because Johnny Big Bollocks has recommended it. Make the choice yourself, own the decision, and then you will learn from your mistakes. Uh, it's much harder to learn from somebody else's mistakes. Exactly, exactly. Although in the case of Johnny Big Bollocks, I, who, who couldn't listen to him? I, you have to, don't you? <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't be called that. Anyway, it's, it's a great pleasure, Dominic. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.